It's time for Wonks. The monthly, just for fun, look at politics in Iowa. Now, from the Noche Jazz Club in Des Moines, it's Wonks. Hey, hello again, everyone. Welcome to Wonks, the best political party around. I'm Kevin Cooney, and he is Dennis Goldford. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> For this edition of Wonks, we again are live here at Noche Jazz Cabaret in Des Moines with uh, a good Maybe not quite a hundred, but a good crowd of our best <laughs> friends here. Our topic tonight is the Iowa caucuses. You know, thousands of Iowans recently gathered for the Republican and Democratic caucuses. There was not the presidential preference question to attract as many of those caucus goers this go round, but still they showed up to debate issues, express preferences for gubernatorial and congressional candidates, all the while, of course, battling the traditional Iowa caucus snowstorm. Actually, 2018 marks a turning point for the Iowa caucuses. After the infamous 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, 50 years ago this year, if you can imagine that, the Democratic Party formed a commission to make the primary and caucus system more of a grassroots process in reaction to that uh, convention in Chicago. And without going into too much detail here, the modern Iowa caucuses began to evolve at that point. And it turns out they are evolving again, almost as we speak with the Democrats' recent Unity Reform Commission. But has it already evolved now into a complete media circus that critics say misrepresents the true support of Democrats? candidates and for the Republicans with now this new thing called proportional conventional convention balloting do they now have a primary an actual straw poll or something in between let's get the best political party in Iowa started and raise a glass or two or three or four to our Iowa caucus panel First off, former Democratic Congressman Dave Nagel, who most recently was named to head a review of Iowa's caucus system in 2016. He is a former party chair and has gone toe-to-toe with National Democrats over Iowa's first in the nation status, and he says he won. <laughs> Next, we have one of our few non-Daves tonight. Eric Wilson was worked has worked in the caucus campaigns for Michelle Bachman, Mike Huckabee, George W. Bush, and Tim Pawlenty. He's a former journalist with the Waterloo Courier and is president and CEO of ConceptWorks, a media and government public relations company. Eric, with all those Republican campaigns, how did you also help manage Joe Biden in Iowa? Oh, really? <laughs> well, uh a couple of friends of mine, Arthur Davis and uh, Lowell Junkins, uh, were, were big Joe Biden supporters. I was at the Waterloo Courier. Uh, Congressman Nagel had been fed up with me by that point. He wanted to get me out of town. Uh, so uh, I was, uh, I was looking at... I paid at... his salary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he kept, me, he, he kept me employed there. And uh, so I was looking uh, to uh, get out of Waterloo as soon as I could. And I uh, had been interested in working for another Delaware uh, elected official, another candidate from Delaware named Pete DuPont. And uh, Pete's campaign wasn't hiring. Uh, Lowell and Arthur Davis, who, as I said, was the former mayor of, of uh, Des Moines, asked me if I would go to work for Joe. I liked Joe an awful lot, but uh, the thing about Joe, as I think probably most everybody in the room knows, is that Joe wants to be liked by everybody else, too. And on my first day at the campaign, uh, one of the guys just kept looking at me all all day, and he kept glaring at me, and finally he came over to my desk, and he says, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, 
Senator Biden has assured me he's much more conservative than people think he is. And he says, son of a bitch told me he's a lot more liberal than people think. Uh, also on the panel, Jan Bauer. Now, Jan is Democratic National Committee woman for Iowa. She is the chair of the Story County Democrats, and she has served on the National Democratic Unity Reform Commission that has spent the last year looking at possible changes, reforms, and further ways to complicate the Democratic caucus and primary process. So, <laughs> did you come up with a solution? Oh, wait a minute. No, we just wanted short answers. <laughs> of course, there's always solutions when Democrats get together. You know that. And I'm actually here. And I'm actually here because I'm to provide the seriousness on this panel because these guys have great stories and I have none. So thanks for inviting me. Continuing along that same line, we welcome back David Ullman, who has been. <laughs> Who's been an earlier panel member. David has served as GOP party co-chair, chief of staff for Governors Ray and Branstead, and just seems to be on TV a lot when reporters want to talk to a moderate Republican. <laughs> there are not many of us around. That's sort of like a political unicorn, isn't it, Dave? <clears throat> uh, back on the question-asking question side of the stage, two people who know the right questions to ask. First of all, and Seltzer runs Seltzer & Company. She's been described by Nate Silver's 538.com as the best political pollster in the nation. She does the polling for the Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll that has had some very interesting results lately. She's involved in an incredible array of marketing and research for a myriad of companies and causes and has actually been paid to analyze handwriting once. Anybody we know? Uh, not in this room tonight, oh, okay. but I would like to say I'm happy to be on the questioning side of the table. I belong to the American Association of Public Opinion Researchers, and our motto is, hey, if we want your opinion, we'll ask for it. Cut her off right now. And finally, speaking of Dave's, Dave Price is the political director of WHO-TV. He hosts The Insiders on Sunday mornings, which is must-see TV for political wonks. He has authored one book on the 2012 Iowa caucuses, Caucus Chaos, hold-up book. Oh, I don't have to read that. Available on Amazon, and he has another one coming out in a couple of months on the two. 2016 caucus chaos and beyond yeah oh. um, remember Cruz saying that Carson had dropped out and Trump boycotting the debates I'm sure that you know, uh, all will be part that of it may this. come up yeah <laughs> <laughs> anything anything that we didn't already know about the uh, yes. <laughs> hey, this is your chance to promote you the gotta book. buy the book man well I know but you okay <laughs> And we will also uh, call upon another author here during the course of the evening, as you may well know. Our co-host, Dennis Goldford, is the co-author of the Iowa Precinct Caucuses, The Making of a Media Event, third edition. It is the Bible. If you don't have this, you should have it. It is... Checks in the mail. Yeah. Is it 35 bucks now or something? Gee, many Christmas. It's a lot of pages. Oh. All right, let's get started. Dave Nagel, what the hell were the Democrats thinking 50 years ago? Well, you started... <laughs> hey, keep it short, will you? You started, yeah. <laughs> we weren't. The next question. <laughs> All right, no, seriously, though, um, how did they come up with this process? 
give us a the, the whole idea if it wasn't about presidential politics the idea was is that you would get people together in the lowest common political denominator called a precinct and you'd give them choices about which person they wanted to run for office but the predominant focus for us was on terms of party building uh, recruiting people party platform grassroots involvement and uh, and so in 1972 that's what we were focused on and it, and a fine reporter for the New York Times by the name of Johnny Apple came out here because the perception nationally was that Ed Meskey, the senator from Maine, was a shoe-in to be the Democratic nominee. And Apple came out here in 72 and listened to our caucuses. He was the only reporter here. And he found out that Muskie wasn't very popular with anybody. And in fact, he was right. Well, in 76, nobody was going to miss that story. And so in 76, all of a sudden, all of the press came to see the early or the early test. But that's kind of how it evolved. It, the, but the fundamentals of the caucus were always designed for party building. And the presidential selection was simply an add on uh, to see if we couldn't, by uh, process, decide which uh, consensus we could build towards who the, who the candidate should be. You know, there are two old sayings about the Iowa caucuses. One is uh, that they're about organization. In other words, organize, 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 and then get hot on caucus day, or at least the last week. I like it when you quote me. <laughs> um, there you go. I said it was an old saying. <laughs> and uh, expectations. And uh, I've always said that uh, everybody runs against the same candidate or opponent, and that opponent's name is expected. Did you do better than expected or worse than expected? Eric... Do these things hold water, or is this just blowing smoke? Absolutely. I think we saw that uh, over the years, uh, when back in the 80s, when Dave was the, the chairman of the Democratic Party, and we see that still uh, today, where... Uh, uh, it, it really is all about uh, all about doing better than than you're expected to do, and part of that component, of course, is is trying to make uh, opposing candidates look like they're doing worse than they're supposed to do. So one of the things that that we do uh, in the the communication side of the campaign a lot of times is talk about how strong our opponent is and how you know they should be in first place and you guys just don't realize how good they are so that when they finish fourth uh, everybody goes oh gee what a disappointment one of the things this is ann selzer one of the things that that the caucuses are also known for is that they're designed for things to change on caucus night and it's one of the things that is uh, actually daunting for a pollster, if you look at what you're what you're required to do as a pollster and trying to predict what's going to happen on caucus night, it's one of the scariest parts of it. Is that you can measure the intent of people walking into a caucus, but they're designed for things to happen in the room. And I'm curious, Jan Bauer, maybe you have some thoughts about how that works, why why that works. What are some stories you might have of things you've seen happen on caucus night in the room where it happens? As those of us who like Hamilton might say. Sure. Well, <laughs> that's what's so exciting about the Iowa caucuses. You just can't predict what's going to happen in that room because you've got a group of folks who are working to convince everybody in that room that their candidate is the best. And so I like to say it's like the caucuses are all about peer pressure and personal intimidation. So you just keep pushing and, and trying to hammer home your message so that you are heard on caucus night. And it, it often happens that way, so. Uh, people are always say, asking me to explain the horse trading part of it. And I don't caucus myself because I'm unaligned. Do you, can you explain to me 
The horse trading part? The horse trading. Oh, gosh. Dave, do you have some funny stories about horse trading? Because I don't have any. But what, what, what it boils down to, you select delegates to the county convention on the Democratic side. And we better get to David Ullman here pretty quickly because the Republicans do it differently. But on the Democratic side, you elect delegates to the county convention based upon how much support you have in the room. Now, if you don't have enough support in the room for your own candidate, then you can go with another candidate if they'll give you a delegate and support that particular candidate. Uh, the rule of thumb on it has always been, uh, Dave Price, that generally stronger candidates get stronger with the horse trading because they've got more to trade. But you, you'll, it's amazing. I, I've seen counties, districts where, uh, where uh, Ned had to go. Ned has been to every county convention since 19, you know, 1930. And you can't have a county convention without Ned, so you gotta, now in Ned's back, back in Hitler's nephew, but that's not important. What's important is Ned's at that county convention. So you'll see that. Uh, you don't want to make your, the only plumber in town mad. And if he wants to go to the county convention, you better find a way to get him there. So there's a lot of personalities and ideology that play into it on the Democratic side. Dave Price, jump in here. Uh, well, this is for the two-thirds of the Daves here, so Mr. Oman. Uh, but looking at listening to what Congressman Nagel said, the way you all do it on the Republican side, you don't do that 15% threshold. So his argument about, you know, you kind of find out who the real contenders are and who the pretenders are, your side doesn't do it that way, right? Why not? Now, it's a much simpler math on your side. Well, it's, it's very simple. It's, a, it's the world's largest straw poll. Uh, we invite anybody to come in. In, in the 76 or 80 cycle, uh, this would have been considered a big caucus, the, the number of people in, in this room. Last cycle, we had four or 500 people, 600 in some of the urban precincts. You had a like number on, on, on your side. Uh, and we have had, on both fields in open years, a lot of people running. So a lot of choices. And it's very easy. You run a good campaign, you organize, you have a message, you, 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 know, you remember that likability matters, and you organize and you get your people out. And uh, this last cycle, we had the best count, I think, ever. Uh, we had 186,000 people turn out, large field. That's, that number is the functional equivalent of a primary. Mm -hmm. And everybody used the uh, Microsoft app, app turned their results in. Every precinct was in by 10.30. The results were certified in 22 hours. A handful that you could count on one hand of votes changed. It was a very good straw poll. And uh, we're proud of how we do it. What about the horse trading on your side? Because it's different, you don't have the preference groups the way the Democrats do, but you can still have anybody walk into your, into your caucus site, give a speech. It could be one of the candidates themselves. It could be a spouse, a child of the spouse, whatever it is. But how much of that do you see, and how much do you see people really jumping, where they go in perhaps leaning a certain way, and how many are persuadable? The people that Ann have talked about are so difficult to, to measure. I don't know about Eric. I haven't seen that much of it. There is so much organization, so much calling, social media, emails, mail, pe people invited to events right up to the night before. People by that time, of, after a year of it, sort of know who they like. And they're, they're willing to troop through the snow and cast, cast their vote. And Salzer. I wanted to, to kind of follow up Dave Oman on something you said, and this is a question for either uh, party. It's kind of a philosophical question. You said that Iowa um, is good for the caucuses, that it's good for the process. And I'm wondering if the process is good for Iowa. 
That is, we go first. We hope that it's in February, not in January. That's, that's really awfully early. Um, I'm wondering if it forces people into locking into a candidate so early in the nomination contest and whether there ends up being lasting hard feelings, uh, grudges, things that, that carry on even beyond uh, when the nomination happens, carry on into the convention, carry on um, beyond. Let me, let me give, first of all, Dave, <clears throat> you know, with, with enormous respect for you, to tell you, to give you a, a, a tart answer, a sharp answer. It's not important to Iowa. Our role is not to engage in our own endowment. Our role is to serve a national purpose, which is to give anyone who thinks they have a chance a chance to run for president of the United States. Are there in our party hard feeling? God, there's still people mad at the Sanders people in our county and still people mad at the Hillary people in our county. But if we had a primary in June when nobody cared, there'd still be hard feeling. There'd still be hard feeling. There's always bitterness after an election. What we have to keep in mind, and enormous respect for the Republican process, we don't step on each other because we understand we have a broader role a national role, and indeed, as we've alluded to, an international role. And that is to see that the President of the United States, the next President of the United States, starts someplace where he has to walk across the barnyard, has to drive down a gravel road, has to shake real people's hands, and if he's successful, he or she has a chance to obtain that opportunity. Sorry, and, I don't mean to be. Yeah. But I feel, I, I don't mean to give you the impression I feel rather strongly about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we agree on that. Uh, your question was, is it good for Iowa? The answer is yes. Most people interpret that, that it gives, it, you know, drives up hotel occupancy and a lot of rental cars and all the rest. That's chicken feed. We, this is an $80 billion state economy that we have here. A lot of it agribusiness, growing tech, a lot of manufacturing. That's a tiny blip. Uh, I think where it, where it does add value is it's, it's a party-building exercise. I think the only downside that I've thought about and never written about is that I, do, I think it polarizes the state because both parties come through the caucuses, both parties nominate somebody, one person gets elected, and in about 90 days the conjecture begins about who's going to run the next time, at least on the other side, if not on the side that won. And so immediately you have people right now, and it's on your side, and there may be some on our side, who just can't wait to get the process started for 2020, and it starts pulling people apart. And we've got huge issues in this state, growth issues, conservation, education, that's all. And it's harder, I think, for the legislators in the room. They may or may not agree with this, but I think sometimes it's a little harder to pull Iowans together. I have a, I have a question for Dave Nagel and Jen Bauer. Um, why, are you, why are you picking on us? What's the other? Go ahead. Go ahead. Easy targets. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, the the democratic system. Um, I, I have a question about its fairness. I really do, and I think a lot of people. If you've ever uh, talked to somebody who has been on the thirteen uh, percent side of the fifteen percent uh, viability threshold, uh, which you know over the years covering caucuses, there have been a lot of folks like that that we've heard from. Um, 
you would think that being the earliest test in the country, uh, and you have several candidates, sometimes six or seven, that 15% threshold or any other threshold is really unfair, isn't it? I mean, in theory, someone could get, you know, uh, 14% across listen, the state but not get credit now, for now anything. Now listen, and I'll, I'll yield to Jan just, now listen, Martin O'Malley. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's the way this works. When you play a, a basketball game, for example, and you don't score, you don't get two points for effort. When you play a football game and it's 40 to nothing, and if you're playing for some teams in Iowa, you don't get a touchdown just because you showed up. What the Iowa caucus is designed to do is not to pick the nominee. It's very important in this room that we remember that. It's designed to, it's designed to narrow the field to show which candidates have the potential for broad national support and which ones should perhaps consider engaging in another endeavor. It's also the second part of that, which is that overlay that I talked about, which is to lay a bill, to start to lay the groundwork for a consensus that if you're not for Martin O'Malley, which of the remaining candidates would be your second choice and even in the realignment process, even your third? Jan? Yeah, you stole all my answers, Dave. <laughs> Then tell a funny story. Yeah, <laughs> he's got the funny stories. He's got the the history. But uh, as the congressman said, this is about choosing candidates that can win, and uh, the process is democratic. Uh, every every uh, candidate comes to a, a to Ames, <laughs> comes to Iowa, knowing what the rules are. And uh, so they got to get in there and start building an organization because, as you said, organization, 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 and then get hot on caucus night. And that's frankly how I choose my candidates is uh, if they can build an organization, they get my attention. If they can't, well, they have to go looking elsewhere. Kevin, let me, let me uh, dive in if I might. I don't know. As a Republican, I'm, I'm enjoying the are program. Are you sure you want to check in on this? <laughs> Just, just because we invited you didn't mean we're going to let you talk. Right. <laughs> sort of like your Republican meetings, isn't it, Dave? <laughs> As the remaining moderate. I'm enjoying that position a lot, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, I think we should talk a little bit about why Iowa, all right? Because it's been mentioned that this is a place where an unknown can start, and it's, that's not a trivial Answer this cycle in your party, there was talk, I think more in our, than in our party, about California wanting to jump in because there are three people in California, including Steyer, who is a billionaire, who would like to buy the nomination, if not the White House. I'm available. That, Go ahead. That, <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't repeat that. Uh, if California led the way, it would be a contest between Oprah and Steyer, and Mark Cuban, and anybody who wanted to write the biggest check. You can't do that in Iowa. Why are we good for the process, Kevin? Uh, we're 25th in area, we're 30th in population. We were admitted to the Union 29th, that really is irrelevant, but we are in the middle of the country, we define middle America. And if you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of uh, name ID, the one thing you do have is time. You can come out here a year early, like Jimmy Carter did. A year later, he won the caucuses. A year after that, January of 77, he took the oath of office. So he did that because this state was an open field. Nobody could buy it, and that's still the way it is. Before we take a break, uh, Dennis, uh, what is it that you always say about Iowa being first? Well, I've always said that Iowa is not a first because we're important. We're important because we're first. 
in any serial nomination process, whoever is first is going to have the biggest, most outside voice. In fact, when other states try to front load, as we say, move their primaries up closer even to Iowa, that doesn't diminish the impact of the caucuses. That increases the impact because candidates don't have time to deal with a loss or a win adequately if the next primary, of course, it's a week later, eight days later in New Hampshire, but if the rest of them follow very quickly, um, when you compress the process like that, that increases the role of Iowa, which really ticks off other states. And that's what we're really good at. (laughs) We're going to take a break here, but we will be back with more wonks and uh, talk to uh, some folks in the audience. I'm sure there's a lot of questions here. So we'll take a break and be back in just a moment. You know Noche for the best jazz in Iowa, but have you been backstage? Noche's backstage is as cool as Noche on stage. Backstage is 2,500 square feet of unique event space for your corporate gathering, rehearsal dinner, wedding reception, and everything in between. The warm, restored hardwood floors and high-raftered ceilings make for a space unique in downtown Des Moines. And catering and beverage service? Of course. Let Noche arrange your own backstage pass. For more details and rental rates, go to nochedsm.com. That's N-O-C-E-D-S-M dot com. Welcome back to more walks, everyone. We are going to uh, continue our discussion of the Iowa caucuses, pros and cons, changes and uh, history and interesting stories. And of course, you can't imagine a more interesting storyteller than Eric Wilson, who has managed or participated uh, been the communications director for, I think, about 47 campaigns over the years. How long did that Scott Walker campaign last? Eric? You know... I don't think Governor Walker ever knew that I was his communications director. (laughs) I was the only guy old enough to drive the Winnebago who had a clean driving record. And so I think he just, every time he showed up and I was driving the Winnebago, he just thought, there's the old guy driving the Winnebago. Eric, tell us, uh, in terms of uh, incidents like that, tell us about the Bachman event. You know, I've had a lot of psychotherapy to try to... (laughs) get over this they bring back the painful memories all the time i think i'm okay i'll be back in therapy tomorrow but i I, you know i I think the thing you know people forget when you do this for a living you don't always end up with a candidate that you expect you're going to end up with we started out with governor uh that year uh after the palenti campaign i ended up with the the bachman campaign there was one guy who was dressed up as a continental soldier or George Washington or somebody like that. He came from out of state and he would just hang out in the lobby and hit on women and (laughs) close your eyes and pretend I'm George Washington sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, but I never was a big believer in putting somebody out on a highway overpass with a sign until that day when I said, you know, it's 10 below zero. Why don't you go out on 235 and hold this sign for Ben Carson and uh, 
and and show you know that it really really kind of help us out. But that 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 can I mean remember that was the campaign that had Kent Sorensen uh, and uh, and I. I turned in Kent Sorensen, and then I learned the expression "lawyer up yourself" because uh, that was an interesting time. And I do think of myself as a moderate Republican, like David, although people don't always uh, recognize that with some of the candidates I've worked for. Again, as I said, I I do it for a living. But two in incidences that really sort of underscored how I felt out of place. Uh, one of the guys was leaving my office, uh, and I noticed he had a nine millimeter. Beretta in in the back of his pants, and I sort of pointed out to him. I said, "You know, you, you're carrying a gun," and he says, "Well, yeah, we think you're the weird one because you're the only one not carrying one." <laughs> and there were eight of us in the office, and I found out there were about 15 handguns uh, in the office. So when the Occupy Wall Street people were coming and they were going to take over the office, and I called the Urbandale police and I said well as you're preparing for this protest I just want you to know our people are armed <laughs> and he said you know well as long as they have permits I said I, I don't care if they got permits I'm just gonna I'm worried they're gonna shoot somebody you know and I don't want it to be me in the crossfire but uh, the 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 uh, Saturday before the the Saturday before the caucuses I'm sitting in my office and I see a TV crew coming in and when you know we've got 80 phone callers from Oral Roberts University and we've got this evangelical pastor who's praying and the Oral Roberts folks start speaking in tongues. I, I swear to God. Being a Roman Catholic, that's a little bit off-putting, a little unnerving for me. So I go running out the front of the, the headquarters, and I said, hey, let's do the interview out here, guys. And <laughs> it's, it's five below zero, but don't worry about it. Let's, let's do the interview out here. And they said, we're not here for an interview. We just want to get some video of the phone bank. I was like, son of a So at that moment, I said, oh, well, uh, hold on, let's do the interview out here. And, uh, and I am practically wrestling with the guy all the while listening, you know, okay, prayer's over, I hear amen, no more tongues, all right, come on in, shoot, shoot the... So uh, those are sort of some of the things that go on behind the scenes that uh, I spend a lot of time trying to keep Dave Price from finding out about. Dave Price, uh... As the news guy up here, I've been uh, following Twitter throughout, so I was following the president's Twitter tonight, and he's actually been he's been tweeting along with this event, so I thought I would uh, pass along. Uh, he's called Congressman Nagel a loser. Uh, I've never Dave been Ullman, more honored. Dave Ullman is sad. Uh, I am fake news, and nobody believes Ann's polls. <laughs> Work We're okay. yeah. yeah, what's with us? Why isn't he picking on us? Come on. Uh, we got to do something here. Why'd we get left out? Yeah, I'm feeling kind of hurt. But seriously, Eric, you've led, as uh, Kevin mentioned, 46 different campaigns. Um, this tr the, the Trump phenomenon, uh, which I will plug my next book, Kevin, since I punted on my first attempt, 
which is a lot of what the first book was a lot about the caucuses. This one is more about a little bit about the caucuses, but it's more this Trump phenomenon and where everybody goes from here. But one of the things with Trump is obviously he has, do we say mastered? He's a force on social media, right? So how does this going forward, Eric, because you're going to be sought after in the 20 camp, 2020 cycle, whether you want to be or not. Uh, to for, drive the Winnebago. To drive the Winnebago. <laughs> and I'll, I'll look even better as a uh, four years older guy driving the Winnebago <laughs> and at you'll, that point. You'll you know? be packing, too, that's, that that's night, right. won't yeah. you? <laughs> at least two. Right, right. Yeah. But Depending how, on the candidate. How do you think that, uh, that what President Trump has done, the way he uses social media, how will that impact the organizing efforts of the caucus? You know, the great thing I think all of us have seen in, in politics over the years is how the pendulum always sort of swings back. And we're out here right now. Uh, obviously, social media is not going away as, as every campaign. Uh, you know, I, I think about 2000 campaign working with George W. Bush. We were just starting to understand, uh, you know, how we use the Internet, how we use. I mean, it wasn't even really, I think, thought of as social media at that point. And so, and so we're, we're always evolving in how we communicate with uh, with our target audiences uh, with social media. Uh, and, and certainly it's going to be different in 2020 than it is in, in 2018 and different in 2022. Um and, and I just, I'm praying the pendulum swings back uh, to a to kind of a more normal, uh, civil uh, sort of, of conversation. The vitriol aside, yeah. how do you think you will use it more for an organizing function? Uh, you know, I, I've thought about that from a from a caucus standpoint, from a precinct standpoint. And, and, and years back, as we were, as, as all of us have organized our precincts, it was truly a geographic boundary. It was our precinct that we were trying to get people to come to our precinct. Today, as you think about our social media, our precinct is the whole state of Iowa and, and, and beyond for that matter. But as we talk about reaching people to get them to, to turn out for a caucus, uh, their precinct may be in Sioux City. Their precinct may be in, in Waterloo. It may be in Ames. Uh, and so as I'm communicating with people via social media, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a much bigger universe. And, and again, I think that's, that's something that will continue to evolve. But that's something that's very different than, uh, than, than even uh, two th the 2000 and, and perhaps even the 2004 election. David, I think you'll see more geofencing, micro-targeting. I mean, that, that's a distinct topic from vitriol or outlandish comments well, look on at tweets. What but, the but, Clinton campaign did in last, you know, they had like the quilt, quilters for Hillary and all these Facebook groups. No offense, Troy. But you did have a quilters group, right? <laughs> but they had all of these right. really small niche groups. You can get 100 data points in any household and you can you know drive those in. Maybe the each spouse gets a different message, but if it, if it can motivate that person to come out and vote, that'll be helpful. I, I don't think to. that's going away. That pendulum is going to keep going one direction. I have to, you know, I have to say that the one that impressed me the most about that about that targeting, Dave Nagel here, was uh, was the Cruz campaign. I think they were one of the early uses of that, uh, you know, micro targeting that uh, that we see more and more and more about now. 
But here, here's a, a question that I have. But they also use it as a weapon on caucus night to say Ben Carson was dropping out when he wasn't. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But here's the question I have, and we hit it in our party in uh, in 2016. Is, is that there was a large perception among the Sanders people that the party leadership was tilted to, to Clinton. Uh, where goes the Republican Party now if someone chooses to challenge Trump? And not picking on that specifically, but if you're going to be first, your danger is never the one who wins your caucus, whether it's Republican or Democrat. I mean, hell, they love us, you know. It's the one that finishes second, third, and fourth that's going to be around in the next cycle that you've got to see insurer leaves with the perception that they were treated fairly. And so that's, that's going to be one of the challenges I think the Republican Party is going to face this time is if, if Trump is challenged. I'm not advocating for it or against it. That's not my business. But what do you do if someone credible decides to challenge the president? How, how, are, you, how are you going to handle that? <laughs> Uh, don't forget, folks, we have your microphone out here. Sure. Who so. wants to ask a question? I see people moving around. But, oh, God, here we go. Give us your name and oh, where you're God. from. And Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> you just won a free toaster. <laughs> so now that the Des Moines Register has a subscription number of about five, <laughs> Ooh. <What? laughs> you missed Carol Hunter Raise here your last hand time. If you get a paper. Um, what does that do for information out there for people who don't know the candidates? Um, you know, not everybody listens to the nightly news. Uh, unless, what? <laughs> well, come on. A lot of us are watching the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. So. How do people now, how do you expect to get people to get excited about those candidates for the caucus when really a lot of people are not looking at print media and are only sort of looking at selected social media? Who wants to handle that? <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> I, I, th I think this is Eric. I think the, the points that, that David made earlier about the, the, the targeting that's going on, the, the use of technology and social media and the, the hundred different data points and we know if a person drives a white Chevy and they're a hunter, they're inclined to do this or that or the other thing. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's going to be, be more of that going on uh, under the surface. Laura Bellin, I'm a Iowa Democrat who criticizes the caucus system and I like to say that's how to not win friends and not influence people. I have a question for Jan Bauer and Dave Nagel, because it's easy to say, oh, the caucuses aren't about selecting a candidate, they're about building the party. But the average person goes to the Iowa caucuses because they want to make their preference known for a candidate. And I collect stories about wacky outcomes at precinct caucuses that don't reflect what the preferences were in the room. And I don't want to take up too much time, but just a few examples from the last caucuses. There was a Dallas County precinct where there were 12 more Sanders people than Hillary people in the room. And yet it was a three delegate precinct, so Sanders got two, Hillary got one. So, it's, so it looks like there were twice as many Sanders supporters, but it was really only a small difference. Then there was another precinct in Dallas County where there were 20 or 30 more Hillary people, but it was a two delegate precinct. Sanders was viable, so they each got one delegate. So as far as the Iowa Democratic Party is concerned, the two candidates tied. I could go on and on, but my point is we would never tolerate 
this kind of thing in any other context where what you know where the people we people want to know that their vote counted their voice counted and a lot of times with the Iowa Democratic caucuses they go home feeling like it didn't reflect what really happened in that room well there's a couple of problems with that first of all heading the commission and in response to some people who raised the question we're on all over the state holding hearings we ask people if you have any indication of fraud or miscounting or abuse or scallywagon or intrigue or subterfuge tell us <laughs> we were able to identify five precincts where there were problems there are 1,681 precincts in Iowa now it's true that if we just want to go to mass participation the best way to destroy the democratic effort to rebuild in rural Iowa is to just go on the basis of the most people there get the delegates. If you do that, you lend enormous power to the population centers, in particular the university towns. So what you try to do with the caucus process and the allocation delegates is see that you have a firm foundation and a reason why people ought to participate in Pocahontas as much as they ought to participate. And if one of your candidates turns out a whole bunch of people in, in Ames in one precinct, that doesn't override the importance of delegate selection in a rural county. That's why, that's why we do it that way. It's not, if you say it's not perfect, I agree with you. But it's proven open, honest, accessible, and everybody going in knows the rules. Maybe we should have 15 yards for a first down, but we don't. Everybody plays with 10. But Dave, when you say it's open, Democrats don't release raw preference vote totals. No we, d no, we don't. Why not? Because That's not so open. Because it is a preference calibration. In other words, if my candidate isn't viable uh, for candidate A, I can go join candidate B. We're trying to build consensus at the same time we're trying to party build. And the other short answer on that is it's real easy. We can go to their way. We can go to June. We can have our caucus be a straw poll like uh, the Republicans do, but New Hampshire wouldn't stand for it. And our pack, that historical pack that served us so well, would be broken. But isn't, Jan, isn't that one of the things that the, uh, the commission was looking at is a little bit more transparency in terms of the raw numbers? Yeah, so we can get in and uh, audit the results. So uh, there is a provision that, that uh, requires that states release the raw numbers it doesn't say when uh, and it so it's not forcing us to release those numbers on caucus night shifting the emphasis to raw numbers rather than the delegate count I do have a question um, for, for Jan and uh, we mentioned that you were <laughs> that you were on the uh, review commission and the um, uh, I, what did what did you accomplish as far as Iowa goes? Is there anything that's going to change the absentee? What's the correct term again? You told me not balloting, but absentee participation. Thank you. That's Let's right. We don't want to take moment. off any new. Hampshire I've got more important things to do right now. <laughs> Will you come to our county convention and speak? Because I think we could use a little party building, and okay. you would be fabulous there. Wow. I, I could tell them why they want to be in a Democratic caucus, exactly, you mean? Exactly, okay. to avoid the crossfire, if nothing else. 
it's a gun. It's a gun-free zone. Oh my <laughs> lord! And I thought what I was getting into at the Unity Commission was going to be rough, getting between the Hillary folks and the Sanders folks. That's pretty dangerous. Well, it was. I thought in my mind, so I took my helmet along with me, and I was ready to strap it on. But I step into that room, and it becomes a love fest. And I'm thinking, what? So I was a little disappointed, quite frankly. Uh, what will change with the Iowa caucuses? I don't know. It's you know, it, our part of the um, process was to deal with not the nominating uh, selection process of delegates. But what we um, we were looking at a number of things. The whole process was to make it more inclusive, more accessible, and more transparent. And that's what uh, we in the party have been doing since we've started reforming. Um, back in the 80s. We're just trying to reach out to more folks, get them involved, and keep them involved because as the congressman keeps saying, the caucuses aren't about really the selection process in our eyes. They're about building the party. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk more about that, take, take more stories from the campaign trail. I think we have, I've been counting collectively 1,500 campaigns worth of experience <laughs> at this table. And the lore is that, that you organize, 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 get hot at the end. And I'm curious about those who do and do not. You can also get cold at the other end. And I think well, it's of January or February. Yeah. I think of Howard Dean. And I'm, I'm with Howard. I went with all the candidates. I'm with Howard up in Independence, and some guy gets up and says, uh, my, my friend. And Dean took off on him and says, you're not my friend, which just shocked everybody there. Then he came down that night to the uh, Black and Brown Forum and did very, very poorly. He was overtaxed. He was overextended, etc. And you watch Dean go from first to third in free fall in about seven days. So you can get hot at the end. You can also get awful cold at the end if you don't do it right. Well, I carry around uh, every caucus season what, what I have labeled the, the Dean Graph of Doom. Which was <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the four days that we were in the field with the final poll, Dean went from to the top, just, just crashed into fourth place by the time we were done. And it's just a reminder that anything can happen. I'll, I'll tell you one along the expectations game, if you'd like. And it has to do with Rudy Giuliani. Who, this is David Oman, by who, the way. Who, who I liked. I mean, Rudy's a fun guy to be around. And, and he was running in 07, 08. They sent people out from New York and New Jersey. And remember the old Baker Square restaurant? You know, and they had like three guys and me in a booth. And they, they, were, they were not going to leave until I committed that Bob Ray and I would help them. And I said, you don't get Iowa. We never commit. <laughs> Fast forward, Ray and I went out to see... Rudy and his Mike Duhame, who was a Christie guy this last time, and, and at their headquarters. And they were not trying to hotbox me. They were trying to get Bob Ray to agree. And Bob, you know, Bob Ray had been a start, state party chair. He'd been governor. He'd seen it all. And he wasn't quite there. And he, but he was also such a gentleman, you know. And, and so finally I said, look, we're out of time here. Let's just cut to the chase. What do you guys really think you're going to do in Iowa? And Duhame looked at me and he said, you know, we're playing for fourth. And I said, well, you know, this meeting is over. <laughs> and that was it. I would uh, help bring things to a close by summarizing, I think, the two attitudes toward the caucus with two really quick stories. In 2000, um, a TV crew from L.A. 
came to talk to me about the caucuses. They had been following the Gore campaign. <clears throat> and I'm going to make up a name because I can't remember who the property owner's name was. But they said, you know, we, we went out to an event on a farm where Vice President Gore spoke. And if the Vice President of the United States, particularly a Democrat, were being introduced in Los Angeles, where they were from, they would be introduced by the candidate, be introduced by Barbara Streisand or some major star celebrity. And here it was Farmer Brown. And I said, welcome to Iowa. So that's the one side of the caucuses. The other side, more quickly, fast forward to 2016, I was talking in my office with reporters from several Scandinavian news organizations, and they asked me to explain and describe the caucus process, so I took about 15 minutes and did. And if you follow my drift, the reaction on their faces was whiskey, tango, foxtrot. You're the most important country in the world, and this is how you run your presidential nomination system? That's the other side of attitudes about the caucuses. All right, Dennis, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us for Wonks tonight. We want to thank the members. We want to thank our David Oman, Dave Nagel, Jan Bauer, and Eric Wilson, our panel tonight. Also, Ann Selzer of Selzer & Company and Dave Price of WHO-TV. As always, we want to have a special shout-out to Max Wellman, the general manager of Noche. And since our last wonks here, Max is also a new dad. So thanks to him. And thanks to Maria Philippone and Brandon Gebber at Noche. Josh Jepson is up there. He's our audio engineer. Alex Cooney is in charge at iowawonks.com and edits our podcast. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Special thanks to Matt Paul and Matt Strawn. Bob Thomas wrote our theme music. Rob Davis is our executive producer. Dennis Goldford, as always, is too smart to be a part of this panel, but does so anyway out of the goodness of his heart. I'm Kevin Cooney. Thank you for being a part of Wonks. Yeah.